My sanity is just peeling away as we continue this fucking descent into Two weeks Britpop. of Britpop, my god. Hey. But hey, no, we find some good shit, I think. I had five years of Britpop. I, 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 I lived through this. This is like, the war I is a memory. This. <laughs> For me, it's a reality. Do you have PTSD? Possibly. <laughs> yeah, your entire life has been a rebellion against Britpop. Mm. It's, it's certainly against the accent. Yeah. 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 I think that was the worst thing to come out of it. Which um, one, the Manchester one or the London one? <laughs> The Britpop accent and just the phenomenon of leaning into your fucking English. Yeah, the whole lad, 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 lad culture. That is definitely triggering. Mm-hmm. I am conditioned like a dog. <laughs> well, if you want to be a total lad, then I would suggest that you help us out by going to our Patreon. Yeah, it's uh, patreon.com forward slash unsungpod. Uh, you should go there and see what we've got to offer. We think we have some nice things for some nice people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you get the episodes early, you get some cool stuff, we'll make you playlists, do all these things. Um, we will, we will definitely do that. Yeah, we will do, do that. We're supposed to do that. Yeah, I mean, there's really no excuse at this point. No. I know, come on. Alright, uh, by the, the time this has gone out, everything will be done, I'm going to say, for all the people that are waiting. <laughs> but for everybody else, sign then. up. Uh, yeah, thanks. Alright, let's get on with it. Welcome and back. Yeah, we're back. Hi. We're back. Full of beans for the second half of this... Uh, cool Britannia. Yeah, <laughs> Britpop fucking community service that we're doing. Um, I have not been hungover for a week. It is, we've only just paused the recorder to go into this. But it is a week later, but... You're still feeling truth it. Truth be told, I feel fucking horrendous. So <laughs> we're going to try and get to the end of this. Uh, uh, so this part, we are going to talk about the records that each of us think... Are the unsung records of the genre? Wow, well, I don't know if I'd go with unsung, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, they're just the albums that we think. To be fair, we've always with the mix, it best, maybe? With the mix tapes. Know. It's not really. I mean, yeah. live through this and Bad Motorfinger, for example, are yeah. unsung. You know, yeah, yeah. And it's just albums that are culturally significant, and they're not definitely maybe. It's <laughs> yeah, the one time when we tend to bend our nose a little bit to suit our own needs, which we kind of do quite often. You, you definitely had to. Mark was like, guys, I think I'm just going to sit, sit this oh, one. If you make the rules, you get it. to break the rules, so fuck it. Yeah. I actually had trouble. Like I said, I wanted to pick Ash, but I think I'd like to save Ash for a proper discussion because I think, I think they're a really good band. Um, David, you'd mentioned maybe placebo, and again, maybe placebo, or I was going to choose Cooler Shaker just for a laugh. <laughs> placebo are a fucking a great band. Um, yeah, they have their moments, but they're a great band, and so they they deserve a separate discussion. And I don't think are strictly Britpop anyway. They're kind of on the cusp of it. So yeah. I thought so, about a different class by pulp, but I can bring myself to listen to it. Uh, yeah, so. I mean that is, I think yeah. even that would be stretching credulity with yeah. uh, on the song because yeah. that is so huge, man. So huge. I also I just found this whole genre I struggle quite a lot. Yeah, it's, like, it's hard to listen to now, man. I genuinely think I found one of the only albums that I actually enjoy listening to. Mm-hmm. Even in this band's discography, I went back and I was like, oh, really fucking great. Song. Yeah, yeah. So there are some hidden gems in there. Um, I mean, I remember we we spoke about this before we press record. I remember thinking. When I was young, Britpop was coming out because I, I, I lived through the Britpop mm. wars. Uh, I was 11, 12 when the first Britpop stuff started to really like, emerge. And you don't really know your musical identity at that age. I was like, maybe this is the thing that I like. Maybe this is the thing I'm into. And you dabble with it. And like I said, there was Where Have You Been Tonight by Shed 7. There was the odd song. Oh, I fucking really like this. Maybe this is the this is the scene 
that I'm going to get into. You know, and yeah. yeah, it just never took. There was never any critical mass behind any band with enough good songs to make me think that's a good band versus just uh, they kind of got lucky and wrote one good bit of a song. Or yeah, yeah, you know. totally. So there's a few bands have decent moments, and you can certainly go through Britpop and find probably one compilation's worth of pretty decent tunes. Mm-hmm. Um, but none of these bands really had great albums. Looking back in it now, you know, it's funny for me. I, sorry, like, not none. Very few. Very few. For me, it was. A very like I can remember my first two singles that I bought were both on cassette and I bought them from Tower Records in Glasgow. We were down here, I think my dad was working or something like that. <laughs> cassette and, single man. Yeah, cassette Is there single. any greater threat to the environment <laughs> all the so effort much plastic. plastic. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the two singles that I bought, the way that I then decided to follow that up with my listening maybe saved me and defined me a little bit because I bought Oasis, Wonderwall and I bought Firestarter by The Prodigy Mm. (laughs) both huge tracks at the time and as much as Wonderwall was a great song it was Firestarter that really fucking got me into fucking hate Wonderwall (laughs) I always hated Wonderwall I I was all in on Oasis for Definitely Maybe and actually got the whatever standalone single that came out after it, which had, by the way, about three or four fucking great B-sides that yeah. went on. Acquiesce and Slide. Yeah, they were on, on the yeah, master plan. Big fucking tunes. But as soon as um, What's the Story came out, I was off the yeah. fucking Oasis train. Uh, no, I was young enough where Don't Look Back in Anger and Wonderwall were just really big tunes that got stuck in my head. I hadn't quite got quality control yet. But The Prodigy, well, that... That was the one that really fucking took me in. Keith Flint, that's what the hair's like. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, fuck it, I'll shave down the middle soon. <laughs> um, and then a year later, Fat of the Land came out, and I just fucking loved that. And then I got into Chemical Brothers, and I got into dance music. And then three years later, I mean, I probably would have become a dance head if it were not for seeing Corn Got the Life on the chart show when I was 14. <laughs> okay. um, but yeah, for the four years, I was just truly into dance music. And that was thanks to the Prodigy being better than Oasis. Mm. But uh, mm. yeah. Well, uh, who wants to go first? I don't, I don't mind. I think uh, I think you should go first. Because uh, chronologically, it makes sense, I guess, because 95, 96, 97. So. Right, okay. Oh yeah, let's do it by year. Works uh, out for me. So, I've chosen I Should Coco by Supergrass. And uh-huh. I, I stand by this choice. I, I have a really, I have a, a an enduring fondness for this album. Um, it did not, you know, it's not great everywhere. It's got one of the most obnoxiously irritating songs of the entire Britpop movement on it. On earth, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a song that the band don't play and don't like. It sounds nothing like anything this album. Way, yeah, they were. I think what made me so pleasantly surprised about Supergrass was that I heard that song and I fucking hated it. Mm-hmm. And then a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, John, um, played the record to me and I was like, this can't be the same band. It was this kind of like adrenalised, sort of punk energy, indie music. Play. You're talking about All Right, the single is the one that it, oh, people fuck hate. It. All Right yeah. is yeah, yeah. awful. But the, the the rest of the album was well, 
the majority of the rest of the album, like sitting up straight and caught by the fuzz, it was like really kind of like rowdy, a bit yobbish. Sounds yeah. like the Buzzcocks. Yeah, it does. It has like a kind of post-punk sort of energy, but then it's got the kind of indie dynamics in it. Um, I really love Caught by the Fuzz. I think it was on one of those the best album in the world ever's. Yeah, that was like a sort of defining compilation of Britpop and lad culture and stuff like that. But was yeah, also Caught on, by the Fuzz was great. It was on Hot Fuzz as well. That was their uh, first ever release as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so just a, a wee bit about them. We'll just we'll, we'll swing through this. Uh, formed in 1993, it's uh, Gaz, Dan, and Mick. Although uh, Gaz's brother Rob Coombs uh, joined in Keys in 2002. They're from Oxford. Uh, they actually split in 2010, but I think they've since reformed. Um, yeah, they have. I think, as I mentioned in the, the previous episode, Gaz and Dan were originally in a band called the Jennifers, who were a shoegaze band. They were in their mid to late teens at the time, so it wasn't exactly like a serious career thing, but it, it, they, they have stuff out there. Uh, the band was originally called Theodore Supergrass, mm-hmm. uh, and the idea was... Uh, have you ever you ever seen the episode of uh, Black Mirror? Is it Waldo? The, the, the Waldo moment, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the, the cartoon character that ends up running for office and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so their idea with the Theodore Supergrass is that it would be this little character, and all their interviews would be an, an, like animated responses... Mm-hmm. You know, submitted questions Then they'd animate the responses with this character They didn't really want to be in it They didn't want them personally to be the front of the band It didn't really work out that way uh, But uh, Caught by the Fuzz, first release That was in 1994 And one of the one of the things that really broke Supergrass Was uh, John Peel uh, John Peel got really behind that single when it came out Ended up completely selling out of all the copies uh, On the back of that uh, I think it was the first Maybe the first time that a song had been single of the week in the enemy and in Melody Maker. Uh, Melody Maker's long since departed, and enemy's not long for this world, I think. But uh, they were they were big influencers at the time. Um, there were two more singles as well before the album came out. Uh, one was called Lenny. Uh, one was called Man Size Rooster. They're all on this record. Mm-hmm. And then the album was released in May in 1985, and it debuted at number one, which is fucking mad. Um, in the midst of fucking Brit pop, yeah. Yeah, and uh, they had the split single, uh, All Right slash Time, Times near the end of the, song, the, the record, uh, that was in the top three for a month. The highest placing was at number two. I think, like, Supergrass, they seemed like the odd men out. Like, they, they, there was something very unconcerned about cool. They had no real swagger. They were kind of goofy. I mean, they've got later videos where they're with Muppets and all this kind of stuff. They're, there's something very playful about the band. They don't seem to take themselves overly mm. seriously, either lyrically or musically or aesthetically. They seem very grounded. They also weren't a Northern band, but they weren't a London band. They yeah. were an Oxford band, mm. and Oxford at that point had its own scene. And yeah, it did actually. There was quite a few bands in Oxford. Yeah, there. so I feel that definitely helped. They never got caught up in the Camden bullshit. Uh, and yeah, they definitely kind of seen kind of outsiders. Yeah. As a weird aside, Gas Coombs is only forty three years old. Yeah, but oh, well, when that's mental. When the that's band when they recorded this album, they were they're still teenagers. Yeah, the whole band. It's mental yeah. to think like they're so omnipresent as an as a next yeah. age, you know what I mean? And then it's like this guy's in his early forties. It's well, that, that's like Robbie Williams is only forty four or something. Yeah, <laughs> Beyonce's thirty eight. Oh, Jesus, she doesn't. She's she always seems younger than that. Jay Z's fifty. 
Yeah, I can Anyway, <laughs> um, so there was something for me very quickly sort of realised Britpop wasn't going to be my calling. At least, you know, by 95, 96, I was like, right, this shit just isn't working for me. I'll get into Nirvana, stuff like that. Yeah, I'm taking the sambas and fucking off. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll take that one that one thing. And it's not even theirs, in fact. It was Manchester, isn't it? Um, but I think there was something really likeable about Supergrass that was lacking with the other bands. The obnoxiousness wasn't there. The sort of pompous sort of derision, the swagger, the... They just didn't have any of that. They seemed like a really fucking... They came across really well. Uh, I, I loved the way the music was pitched. I loved that mix of... It's not silly, but it, it has silly moments. They used to do silly backing vocals, and we'll talk about that a lot during the, the actual tracks, but so many of the tracks are filled with like ridiculously high-pitched oohs and ahs in the back, yeah. but yet they become really hooky and they work in the music. And I think you can't really do that unless you don't take yourself too seriously. The the better moments of when Blur were kind of a bit, you know, lighthearted. Supergrass have that lightheartedness, but it's not quite so fucking annoying. Yeah, it's, it's not it's, as kitschy. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't feel so contrived. They're also a band that after this continued to be fairly relevant. And I think that's pretty interesting. Like they, they, I would say probably a lot of people would suggest that In It For The Money, the second album, is their best album. It's, in, it's certainly got a lot of really good tunes. The track Richard III, which mm-hmm. is a really strong single to come out of it. Um, it, Late in the Day, I think it's a fucking tremendous song. Um, it's a really strong album and then subsequently they kept releasing stuff that was quite interesting and didn't conform too much to the sounds didn't really blow in the wind with the rest of the movement at the time and I think that was that made them it made them resilient. It gave them an enduring quality that some of the other more kind of easily influenced bands didn't have. Um, so yeah, I mean, they, they they worked for me and they were one of the very few bands that did work for me. And this album, I just found it fucking super charming. They also remember, I think it was off the third record, uh, they did that song, uh, Pumping On Your Stereo. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh. Which was like huge at the time, and I remember that's it coming Muppets out. One. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and I remember, oh, that's great. But the band actually si- said "humping" uh, in on the recording. Yeah, but because it was called "pumping," the radio played it. But like the, <laughs> that was like a total tongue-in-cheek thing. They were like, "Let's just say humping," but put it out as "pumping" and see if it'll get on the radio, and it did. So I mean, I they're just like, "Yeah, fuck it." <laughs> Both words technically mean the same thing, anyway, right? If you're Scot, if you're Scottish, yeah. <laughs> uh, so the name I Should Coco is apparently Cockney rhyming slang for I Should Think So, which I guess, you know, the whole Cockney thing sort of ties them in with the Britpop movement. 
uh, it, it is, I was surprised that it's actually their most successful album. I would have thought that In It For The Money would have been bigger, but no, apparently Ashikoko sold really yeah, well. Yeah, they just went straight in there, yeah. sold half a million records. Um, yeah, and so I mean, going th- I just go through the tunes in the album, because I, I think there's quite a lot of interesting stuff to say about them. Um, it's a great intro to a record, that kind of digga 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 digga. Just a fucking mm. perfectly unfussy, nice way to introduce son. Uh, the first track I'd like to know, the verse, as with so many Supergrass tracks, the verse is kind of silly. It's like a little bit like, like, oi, 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 bit fucking goofy, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they always tighten things up for the chorus. So it's like they're, they're a bit, they're a bit, I don't know, a bit daft at times. But then it's almost like they're, they don't have to try too hard because they're like, look, we can rock when we want to rock. And in the chorus of that, they kind of bring it all together. Um, I think the chorus kicks in really well they've got that really consistent ability to switch between those light hearted playful bits and the kind of more direct anthemic stuff um, so I kill my delay towards the end, which is a really good change up as well. Yeah. Um, it does, aye, aye. and and there's some guitar licks in there as well that oh, I don't yeah. think they're, they're good known sounds. For. Just yeah. generally good guitar sounds. It's, good, good playing. It's quite a roughly recorded album. Sounds quite loose and rattly and quite, you know, you can hear the room they were in. Um, Cut by the Fuzz is track two in the album, we've talked about it. A really iconic song from that era. Uh, as you say, I mean, I think most people like that tune. You know, it's mm. like, whether or not you like Britpop, it's just, it's a fucking cool tune. It sounds it's, a bit like the undertones, I think. does I I think the lyrical content of that song makes it really endearing and relatable mm-hmm. as well you know it's, it's literally about him when he was 15 getting lifted mm-hmm. for being in possession of weed which wasn't uh, that long ago when he recorded the album so. yeah yeah true <laughs> um, it's heavy on the accents you know mm-hmm. cut boy the fads yeah <laughs> you know I was <laughs> which I suppose ties it into Britpop as well uh, really good chorus the vocals are layered up really well in that chorus despite the verses being uh, a bit bouncy and funny and there's a couple of great chord changes towards the end in that song. Like mm-hmm. they make a couple of slightly weird. I mean, it's a very short song, but they make a couple of slightly weird deviations. It's incredibly lean songwriting, so short, so effective, and it is very much of that kind of undertones, uh, kind of teenage kicks. Less is more. Mm-hmm. Like let's just get in and out. There's the song. Uh, the third track, um, Man Size Rooster. Really cheeky, chappy <laughs> vibe again. It's one of the ones uh, I, th- I think the song's got quite a monkeys feel. You know the band the monkeys. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's kind of got a fair bit of that, albeit a bit more guitar-y And it's one of those ones where the silly backing vocal actually forms like a, a, a total hook in the song.
the silly, the silly backing vocal, it's kind of inane, but they know what they're doing. I think I think it's really well considered and really well chosen and really consistent with the overall aesthetic of the band as well. I kind of I didn't do it for me that song. I much prefer the first two tracks. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, mm. I'm the same. I, I would, yeah. Mansley's Rooster falls into that category of again also bands like the Coral and stuff. It gets that little bit more Johnny England. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's very much. It really places them, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. and you know you'll love it or hate it. I just I think the thing I like about it most is the how silly and yet effective the, those vocal lines are. In it uh, track four, all right. I mean, we can't not talk about it. their biggest song quintessentially a bit pop right <laughs> yeah it's their teen spirit I think they actually referred to it as that as well mm-hmm. um, I noticed Gaz Coombs saying they don't play it anymore but he did he said if they were going to play it they would shift it into a minor key <laughs> and then put everything in the past tense <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I, I fucking can't stand that track it's, the, the, the most annoying thing about this album is that I have to fucking skip it every single yeah, time yeah I think um, one thing that is kind of cool about it is it's actually it's actually got some really interesting backing vocals had no way in the chorus just like underneath it all, which is kind of cool, but I hadn't really popped out and to me until I actually had to properly properly sit down and listen to it, as in listen, listen to it and not hear it on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, yeah, it's pretty much trash at this point. Uh, track five, Lose It. a really good song um, that was released as a standalone single by Sub Pop mm-hmm. and bear in mind this was in 1995 so it's, it's kind of like a really interesting era to be getting a, a single out in Sub Pop and it is I mean, it's not it's not grungy by any means but it's certainly one of the more kind of like one of the cooler tracks like one of the sort of slightly more alternative rocky post-punk <coughs> tracks um, it's really direct still loads of like fun backing vocals in it though um, I, I like the simplicity of the lyrics in that song as well it's just a very simple motif they keep going round and round on really effective uh, track 6 Lenny it's a an incredibly 1970s Britain vibe to it yeah it's like, like jam. yeah it reminds me of the likely lads or something <laughs> Uh, it's quite a big rock moment in the middle, but um, and I really like that uh, that upstroke bass motif that, mm. that that goes through the whole song. It, it's actually got quite an unusual structure, but yeah, I mean it's it's, it's not my favourite track in the album, but I, I think it's got some cool touches in it. Uh, track seven, strange ones. I think this song really highlights how weirdly unorthodox the guys were yeah. as writers. It's got a really cool flow it, man, going from 344 to 44. Yeah, and, and, and the, the kind of the dead stops at the end of the lines mm-hmm. and stuff, it's, it's, it's an interesting touch. Um, the, the track's kind of both, it's both kind of like minimalist and sort of quite whimsical, but I think it has these like quite ambitious moments in it. I don't, it's not proggy, but it has quite big rock moments in it where it kicks in.
track eight, sitting up straight. I fucking love this tune. I also love the fact that it comes in with the intro to what would have been film 95 with Barry Norman mm-hmm. at the time. That piano part. I think this, this track's a precursor to the Arctic Monkeys, to be honest. I think that the early Arctic Monkeys owe a lot to this tune, that kind of spanky, fast, cheeky sort of narrative thing that they do. Arctic Monkeys are really big on telling a story. So like they've got a track called Cornerstone, which is that kind of him talking through scenarios and pubs and girls and this kind of thing, and, and it's all very linear. And I think this is kind of similar. A lot of the tracks in this are actually kind of similar. Um, and also in Sitting Up Straight, the speed of it, he uses the consonants almost percussively. Mm-hmm. Right, sitting up straight in the back of the bus, it's all very kind of like an extra bit, an extra layer of percussion to the music. Uh, track nine, She's So Loose, I think it's a fucking brilliant song. Really standout song yeah, in this. It's a very loose sounding song as well. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually got this in a compilation on the front. Oh, it was like it's Select or something like that. And it was like music from films and like scores. So I'm not really sure what this was on, but it was, it was part of that compilation. Um, and yeah, I, I really love this song. It's got a very odd chord uh, progression in it. It's quite downbeat. I mean, it's it's not downbeat in its pacing, but it's quite downbeat in its, you know, in, in the tune. Um, it's quite dreamy, I think, and ethereal. It sort of maybe harkens back to their stuff with the Jennifers before that. And it brings like a big dollop of balance to what's otherwise quite a kind of jovial and light-hearted record. It's not, it's not miserable, but it's just that little bit more minor, mm-hmm. that little bit more melancholy. I, I, yeah, I think it's aged really well. It's also got a really nice use of a cello in it. Quite yeah, the subtle. cello's really nice, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Really subtly in the mix there. Um, we're not supposed to. It's just them being fucking probably really high, mm-hmm. uh, really silly, sped up, daft. Uh, time, the, the, the other part of the split single with All Right, uh, is a proper like 70s rocker, I think. Really mid-paced, uh, one of the chunkiest songs. Yeah, it sounds a bit like the Eagles in places as well. Does it? Yeah, uh-huh. like when, when they had the rockier moments in the seventies. Hadn't picked up the Eagles, yeah. but I, I, it certainly sounds like seventies. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree. Uh, Sofa of my lethargy, <laughs> uh, track twelve was apparently recorded mostly live. Like they all just got in a room with a friend of the the recording engineer, the producer. <laughs> has a massive Beatles feel. I mean, it's just a mm-hmm. hugely indebted to the Beatles, that song, and has that big kind of jammed out trippy ending mm-hmm. that I think in normal circumstances would have been the end of the album, although they wanted to finish with that kind of wee quirky track, Time to Go, yeah. which isn't really Not a, a song. A song. Really. Yeah. It's sort of like a little motif that they've, they've come up with. Uh, but also, Time to Go, 
the fact that you're acknowledging the end of an album does sort of retrospectively give the album a nice contained feel. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like the album feels like an album as, as a yeah, result. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That. It's not just a bunch of tracks. Yeah, it does. Yeah, there's something about this album that does. It feels a bit sturdy. It feels like an actual record. Yeah, I think like it. It, it, so it seems like a daft decision until you realise it subconsciously. It has made you aware of the fact that they know they're making an album. You know that you're listening to an album, and everybody is just like, "This is an album. It's not just a collection of tunes that we threw together in a random order." Mm-hmm. Wait, um, and music like this, where it's not necessarily that deep, but you know, it's quite straightforward and melodic. Albums like that can just feel like a bunch of songs. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I'm really into that album. It's endured remarkably well. I mean, I'm not saying I give it heavy plays, but, you know, for example, on a, on a shuffle, it always comes in well. Like, I mean, stuff like um, Caught by the Fuzz and Sitting Up Straight, they still hold up really well on playlists. They're still really good, fun music. Mm. I don't know what your thoughts are on Supergrass. I think um, it wasn't what I was expecting, given that I heard all right, um, but I was pleasantly surprised by it. Uh, I like I like the punk nature of it. If it, it feels like a very punk rock record, yeah. it does have that playful Englishness to it as well, which is definitely typical of Britpop at the time. Whether or not they were taking that deliberately, or it was just something that was in the ether, or whether that's something they actually liked, I don't know. But it play it, it plays quite well, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's one of the highlights of the era. <laughs> <laughs> Aye, yeah. definitely. There's it, yeah, it doesn't grate on me really. Yes, yeah. there's like a few tracks where I'm like could totally never listen to it again yeah. but overall it's not a bad listening experience there's some really good tracks on it and they don't annoy me <laughs> like, yeah. like I actually think that they seem like quite nice interesting funny folk yeah I, I, I like their take on music and what I've, I've seen and read of them and just the, the way they come across and I do think as well the fact that they followed it with a really strong second album yeah. showed that they weren't just a sort of artificially inflated sort of phenomenon of Britpop yeah um, yeah, so, I, I, and genuinely, I mean, I th- I'm sure that people that do like them are probably raging that have not picked in it for the money, because there is a case that could be made that it's a better record, but this mm-hmm. this is just an iconic record, and it was, f- I mean, thank fuck for it, it was like a little beacon of, like, hope in the midst of a sea of menswear. <laughs> <laughs> Literally sometimes, uh, yeah. Alright, so who's up next? Chronologically, I suppose it's me. I, su- uh, I suppose it is. Yeah. <laughs> so I've, I've went... For everything must go by the Mannix. Um, not really a bit pop band. Definitely stretching the brief. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of people consider this to be a, a Britpop record. I don't even know if I don't think they would put it in that category. I I mean, at the time they appeared on every compilation that was a Britpop compilation. Mm-hmm. That is true. They appeared yeah. on every festival. Festivals. Um, top so of the they, pops, yeah. In terms of the cultural phenomenon, they were very much part of it, even if they were maybe outsiders. Yeah, because their music mm-hmm. didn't fit in. Very much like Radiohead in a sense. Not definitely not musically. <laughs> <laughs> or aesthetically, you know, but or even in terms of ambition, but kind of gaining fame off the back of a thing which just happened to be happening. Uh, yeah, and I mean, they weren't jangly, they weren't like yeah, they weren't. self-deprecating, mm. they were political, and they were quite grandiose. Yeah, I mean... They, they, They're one of the only bands, a bit like Suede, that started out kind of glammy as well, aren't they? Yeah, so... Formed in 1986, they were formed at school. They were all from Blackwood in, uh, in Wales. 
uh, which is kind of close to Newport. And they were they were basically a punk band to start off with. They loved The Clash, um, yeah. their first EP. They've got that kind of three colours red punk. Totally, yeah. You know? Uh, there was three of them at first They had a bass player But he left Because they thought They weren't getting less punk They had a guitar player So he left So Nicky Wire Moved to bass The other two members of the band Are uh, John, James Dean Bradfield And his cousin Sean Moore Who's a drummer um, Who's actually classically trained as a, as a musician And a fantastic trumpet player As well as drummer Well that's um, going to be useful <laughs> uh, And yeah So they, they kind of Got Richie Edwards in the band And became a glam, a glam rock band, which is really, well, really, really strange. Had, because had they released it in before Red? Yeah, so no, no. Well, they released a song called Suicide Alley. And which, which was a three, we did as a three piece, and then Richie Edwards met. Nicky Wire, the bass player, um, at university, and decided that they wanted to have him play guitar in a band, even though he couldn't play guitar. But they started writing lyrics together because it's like that guy Carlos from Interpol, where they just saw the guy like, "You should get that guy in the band. He can't play in." Oh well, get yeah. him in anyway. So uh, <laughs> it's famous. Uh, Richie Edwards is famous for a few things, but one of the thing, one of the things he's famous for, apart from randomly dis- dis- disappearing, yeah, yeah, and being a. As you get older, you start to see that he's maybe not the great lyricist as people think he is, <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, he also couldn't play guitar, and his guitar was never plugged in on stage. Wow! Mm-hmm. There's actually, there's actually, there's some videos on the Holy Bible special edition. There's some uh, videos of them playing, and his guitar is plugged in and louder than James Dean Bradfield's, and it's it doesn't go well. <laughs> it sounds hideous. Um, is it true that early on? Their, their whole thing when they came out straight out of the box that Generation Terrorists thing was that they were going to sell 16 million albums be the biggest rock band in the world and then break up and yeah that's so that's why they signed a, a 10 album deal with Sony Records because they were like we're never going to make fucking 10 records man we're going to we're going to fucking blow it Richie and Nicky spent all of the time when that album was recorded just fucking around in limousines and, and doing mental shit and James Dean Bradfield basically recorded everything there's even rumours he did he actually programmed the drums as well <laughs> even though Sean Moore is a really fucking good drummer and the drums sound really fake in that record so could be a bit of truth to that. Yeah, so he he was responsible for everything, and he's this he's a the songwriter of the band, right? He's the main nucleus of where they come from. Ever since then, they've released that after Generation Terrorist, the first record. They then want to release another twelve records. Um, and they've slowly like they they drifted into alt rock for a while, yeah. and then now they're kind of like dad pop or something. Yeah, yeah. The, the thing talk that, about Richie Edwards. Mm-hmm. There's also the infamous uh, incident with Steve Lamack. Yeah, where he carved four wheel on his arm during the during, yeah, to, during an interview. Yeah, to show that they were for the real, real deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, received seventeen stitches. Yeah, it's a nice picture. It's fucking grim, man. I remember seeing that in Kerrang when I was wee, and I was like, "Oh, yes, that's, that's a bad cut." <laughs> so one of the things I've all, one of the things I've always liked about the Manics is that they were always open to doing whatever the fuck they wanted on a record, and they had that security of a major label deal, so they really could. I mean, and in two thousand, they did a they did a strange record called No Your Enemy, which is like odd, heavy parts, some really weird kind of classical stuff, almost in, in terms of composition. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Then they did a, an, an album called Lifeblood, which is basically an 80s electro pop album. <laughs> to a couple yeah. of bits of it and it's, it's not very good in my opinion but um, yeah so and then they, they went back and revisited Richie Edwards' songbook in 2009 with a record called Journal for Plague Lovers um, which was kind of trying to harken back to the Holy Bible but it's, a, it's got a completely different vibe and there's a lot more post-punk than anything else So I have, I have to say, right, with the Manix, I think, um, is it Gold Against the Soul? Yes. I think that's the best songwriting in, so? in their catalogue. And I think mm. that Holy Bible is the most interesting album. It is, for sure, the most interesting album, I think. Uh, it's actually good. The Holy Bible is a good, a good barometer for why this record is the way it is, right? Mm-hmm. There's a, like a whole bunch of reasons as to why everything must go as, it, as big and cathartic and grandiose and the stadium bothering. I was as, surprised, as though, that, that Holy Bible came out in 94. Yeah, I, I thought it was much older than that, um, and it's interesting as well, given that it's the album that everybody I know that like like Semantics talks about Holy Bible. Yeah, it was one of the least successful. It's because it, it was it was it didn't have a single on it really. It had they released faster, which is not really a single, especially because the chorus is just it's just not really a what, chorus. It's not really a chorus. <laughs> yeah, it's like. <laughs> I want to believe in eh, oh, lots of lyrics. I'm not even going to try and quote them, but like I have an issue with the lyrics. That I have an issue with lyrics as well. It's something that something that I used to quite enjoy when I was younger. Is is actually one of the things which has turned me off the band as I've, as I've grown older, and I've actually picked up on that in my notes for this album as well. Mm-hmm. By the way, the Manix, ten million record sales. Yeah. Yeah, they're a big band. Yeah. yeah, not a lot if you think about how long they've been around for, right? But for the bulk albums. of those happened at a time when they were making a lot of money from those record sales. Absolutely, yeah, like I mean. this one sold a million copies, and it was number two, opened on the charts. You know, um, it came on the heels of Richie Edwards disappearing on the middle of the just before they were going to go to America to tour the Holy Bible. The day, yeah, um, possibly jumped in the Severn, and possibly just vanished into obscurity. Yeah, it's, he was declared officially dead in two thousand and eight, but mm-hmm. I noticed that like. Last well, like two weeks ago or something like that, there was a a new call for him to come forward. Really? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really odd. It's, it's like really 20, strange. It's, 20, it's, it's some anniversary mm-hmm. or some. Uh, yeah, be twenty five years. Some postman had said, <coughs> "Oh yeah, I, I I saw him, but on that bridge that morning, blah blah blah." Mm-hmm. I don't I don't really know. Anyway, yeah. So the us started the band with Madeline McCann, probably. <laughs> So this this album comes off the back of that, and they they were really questioning whether they should continue without him, and if it, if it should be an ongoing effort, and decided fuck it, they're going to go ahead and do it, and so they they decided to record uh, everything must go, which is a radical departure, even by their standards. The Holy Bible was a radical departure for them anyway, right? Mm. Coming from Gold Against the Soul, which is kind of still glam rocky, still a bit grungy. doing something which is kind of post-punk and 
and Pegasus is very industrial as well. Yeah, and doing production on it is really odd. I mean, I, I don't think it's bad, but it's just unusual. There's a lot of there's a lot of strange choices in that record, and it's not necessarily inaccessible either, which is I think which is a testament to James Dean Bradfield's songwriting generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is this is everything in the kitchen sink. This record, right? This is exactly what it is. Like everything must go. Is it's cathartic. It's bombastic. It's grandiose. It's it sounds like James Bond theme tune in places. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when it came out, and when they came out, they sort of had a weird special place in music at that point, where it was like, they were kind of on a pedestal, where it was like, oh no, the, the fucking Manix, mm-hmm. they were very yeah, much seen as true. a golden band that yeah. were kind of allowed to do whatever the fuck mm-hmm. they want, so, and that was when this record came out. And it's then, a similar thing to Dinosaur Jr., mm-hmm. like how some people just will not hear a fucking word against Dinosaur Jr., <laughs> like no matter what. Doesn't matter what the fucking record, and they are. because they also cross genres like the indie lads. If you liked Oasis and Ocean, Co- Ocean Color Scene, you still like Manic yeah. Street Preachers, yeah. and your dads would like them. But then also the glam rockers and the punk rockers and the post punk dads and all that still like Manic Street Preachers. You know, kind of they were legitimate for so many different people. That's that's a good point, and I think one of the reasons that this album was as big as it was, and the reason it sold a million copies, is because and. They are the, the the epitome of like BMW rock, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, mm. this was like when the I think it was the Audi Quattro and the BMW Three Series came out the same year as this, and I associate their albums. Mm-hmm. What's his name? Is it Alan Johnson from Peep Show? Yeah. The kind of cool boss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's yeah. got a promotion and he's got a car, and he listens to Manic Street Preachers and Catatonia mm-hmm. in his fucking car, and it's that kind of. This is cool music, but is it? You yeah, know, yeah. like they, they had this, but the Manics though still had this legitimacy that. So it's because like, yeah, they had that past. They had that past. Yeah, the record, they did, right? but they yeah. were really yeah. they were relying on that because had they not had that past, they were they were testing people's fucking patience. Absolutely, with some of the. I, th- I think with up. the record after this. Definitely, that was like, oh, yeah, I mean, my dad had that album literally. That's yeah. a dad record for but sure. But this man. one, I think, this is the one that gave them it just, yeah, it got them so huge, but it was, they were still cool within yeah. a lot of different scenes. Somewhere. I think, in a lot of ways, this is a record that their record label had always wanted them to release. No doubt. You know, yeah. Generation Terrorists is, it's got some big singles on it. Almost like Clemptons was quite a big song for them. Yeah, it was. But it's also a huge, sprawling, almost double album, and a lot of it is not very good. I don't, I don't think it's a very good record. Um, I, I do think Gold is like like quite a strong album, songwriting wise. I, uh, I do agree. I think yeah, and that, that's clearly when James Dean Bradfield and Sean Moore are actually becoming better songwriters. You can hear it, and then they go. By the way, we're going to release this uh, post-punk industrial record called uh, The Holy Bible, and it's going to be all about depression and stuff like that. Uh, are you cool with that? And record about went. Oh, oh, for we, fuck's sake! We can't really say no <laughs> because we've got you for like another six, seven records, and then. You know, they go away and come back with a design for life, which is like a huge fucking song, man. So, design for life uh, brings up an interesting uh, phenomenon as well. There was an era in Britpop where it was making so much money and it was so big 
and a lot of these bands had to had to bring out a new record and they were like what will we do with this new record where can we go and it seems like every fucking band was getting talked into bringing in an orchestra mm-hmm. right yeah, so yeah, you yeah. had Oasis The Verve <clears throat> fucking Shed 7 had an orchestra fucking and Chasing Rainbows I think it is like these guys way way yeah. overcooked the orchestra they always, they always had they had orchestra and Cold Against the Soul um, and but, a couple of tracks and but this pom- is all over it the pomposity of uh-huh. it on this is just out of control but it, they're far from alone at that point mm-hmm. I think it's that thing where like the, the industry had a lot of money in it the scene was huge and a lot of people were having these creative crises where they were like, what can I do next? Mm-hmm. And it was like, fucking start arranging for orchestras, mate. Yeah. And I just, I hate that. Now, when you look back on that, there's so many tracks are just caked and fucking unnecessary strings mm-hmm. everywhere. Uh, it, it's really indicative of that era. I think I think you're right in that point, but I think the Manus Street Peaches deploy it in a much more interesting way because it's actually an element of the sound which has always been there in some, yeah, in some I, form. I, yeah, I agree. I think there was a lot of bands going, oh, let's do a Manix and get the orchestra in, whereas the Manix were kind of like, it felt like a natural movement from them. To, Fucks me off. Yeah, well. Let's go through the tracks because this, this album's definitely too long. Um, for sure. Uh, starts off with Elvis Impersonator, Blackpool Pier. Straight away, it's like big, overdriven, cathartic arena rock, which mm-hmm. is like, this is not even the glam rock manics is it like a whole new thing um see on this album he does this is what i was talking about with the lyrics it's not so much the content of the lyrics but it's the fact that he writes lyrics that don't necessarily fit wire does that yeah that and james dean Bradfield basically take has to take his lyrics and make them into a thing yeah and, and they, they're so clumsily inserted into the melody sometimes it's just mm-hmm. it, they, they don't work in harmony yeah. it's just it's just this Oh, I've got to say this. So it's like I think he's too beholden to actually keeping like the the lyricist lyrics intact, and mm-hmm. I think sometimes that works quite often. The, that, like, the line in this, quite... it's so fucking phony, just jars. It's so fucking funny. It's absurd. Funny. I thought it was funny. No, it's so fucking funny. It's yeah. absurd. Yeah, that jars yeah. so much, man. Um, but I like that's a, that's one of these things. Like the manics were always prone to sloganeering, right, and putting in lyrics which are. Um, which don't really, which makes sense in terms of your right reading it as a bit of a, a bit of poetry if you really want, but they're not necessarily the couplets aren't written for 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 music. I don't think a lot yeah. of the time, and I actually quite like that JDB like takes this wordiness and tries to do something with it. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's it's either that or what else do you do? You know, he's not, he's not a lyric writer. He can't write lyrics. He's it's not it's not a strong suit. So it's like, well, I've got I've got one utility in this band. <laughs> So, but you're right. Um, but that actually, that that kind of lyric thing actually plays to their their strengths, or is actually a strength and a design for life, which is the next song. I think, like all right, like uh, like some of the songs we're going to talk about in the next record, um, it's just so overplayed. It's like unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was on every compilation. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't understand how a design for life got so big on indie dance floors because it does not lend itself. It's not a mover. It's a, no. It's basically a big. Power ballad, yeah, yeah totally. and it's mm-hmm. just people lurching about in the fucking dance floor to this big pompous bomb. But it's kind of, it's like gone down. It's like fucking Angels by Robbie Williams or yeah, something like that. Maybe. It's like huge, but it's like a sing along so thing. I fucking hate James Dean Bradfield's voice. I fucking hate it because <laughs> he had like I've, I've always had a problem with it. Right? He hammers on his top notes all the time. Like he does it in this. He does it all the way through this album. He's always hammering in his uppermost range, and it's like he's got the guy's got. He's not a bad singer, but he's got a voice made for singing Arsenal songs at two a.m. <laughs> but he's he's got one of those like. 
and he always pushes it, pushes it, pushes it. And you're like, Jesus, fuck James. Just get some dynamic in there. And I feel like too often in their songs, he is just going for fucking 10, 10, 10. Totally. Like he's in, he is, his biggest influence is a vocalist is Motown records. Like he, like he likes that big style and I actually quite like that about them. Yeah, that's I don't mind. That's like him. kind of part of what um, Manix is. It's a sort of bombastic, yeah. loud as fuck thing. For me, when I picture him, he's leaning back kind of up and just shouting up at his mic with mm-hmm. Les Paul. Um, <laughs> well, it is a shame though because he, he does have a really, he does have a really good range and he's got a really dynamic voice when he wants to use it. Um, yeah. The second song is Kevin Carter, which is a lot less third. bombastic. The third song is Kevin Carter, which is a, a lot less bombastic. It's um, probably the worst chorus ever written. Um, well, this I is mean, this, this is this is taken from Richie Edwards' lyrics, right? Um, and I actually quite like the fact this was a single because it's not an obvious single choice. No, it's about a really depressing subject and a really oh, interesting the guy. Subject's fascinating. Yeah, yeah really interesting guy. Yeah, um, definitely. The older Mannings would have made this a punk rock song. This sounds like a something. This sounds mm. like a James Bond song. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think that's quite clever on their part. I feel like the chorus in this song is so weak. It probably took as long to write as it takes to sing. Like, it's just so poorly considered I don't actually hate the the, the, the actual verses and stuff are fine mm-hmm. but I just don't get the, the the numbing simplicity of that chorus and the name and just the way it's delivered it fucking does nothing for I think me. I think I think context is probably important for the song as well like your band members just vanish presumed dead you've only got like handfuls of scraps and you want to honour his memory and you probably look at these lyrics and go that's actually quite cool but an interesting subject but it's got no mm-hmm. fucking chorus in there so what am I going to do well you sing his name, so you're saying blame it on the dead guy. And I'm saying I'm saying <laughs> he can't defend himself. I'm not saying I'm not saying blame it on anyone. I'm just saying that like trying to honour somebody who's gone and and trying to like try to bring their vision to life. No, I know in you're an saying I'm just way. Um, it's quite cool. Um, I know alone is also was also co-written by uh, Wired and, and Edwards. This one sounds exactly like the song "You Stole the Sun from My Heart" when the chorus starts. You know their their mm. later tune. It's mm. this exact. I think they've like done this one and then thought oh, we could do that. But we, we could make could it bigger. Better. Yeah, yeah. And it feels um, like they redid it. But I, I do have an issue with the lyrics. I, I mean, I think this is. I like this song. It's quite melancholic and it's it's also really triumphant at the same time. It's kind of like double-edged I guess um, but the lyrics like I'll take a picture of you to remember how good you look like a memory has disappeared naked and lonely with my fears I'm like that's that's not a couplet that's made for singing mate like just fucking just, just delete that just delete that from the song like say Nikki look ma I'm sorry but that's just nonsense it's just like searching for like a weird profundity which is just not there man mm. and I'm like Mate, you're, fuck, you're, you're in your fucking mid-twenties at this point. Like, you, sh- you can do better than this. You have done better than this. <laughs> uh, everything must go. Uh, I like the James Bond feel of this song because it feels like it should be in a James Bond film. Yeah, um, Pierce Brosnan, James yeah, Bond. I like, the, I like the drums in it as well because so, the, the mix of them is so weird. And but talk, huge as well. There is a, there's a remastered version that's kicking about that sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why it's been remastered the way it has been because I feel it sounds worse than the original. Record label went, oh, it's a 20th anniversary. We should do something with that. And there was went, also a good Chemic okay. Brothers remix of this there on is. a Gran Turismo PlayStation game. Oh, yeah. Fucking great. It was, it, was, uh, it was on the B-side to this. 
Uh, oh, was it? Yeah. yeah. Aye, well, that's a couple of different remixes of it on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the production's really cool uh, on the song. I think on the whole record, it's kind of cool. It's got that spectre, like, wall of sound vibe a lot of the time. This one in particular has it with the probably overbearing strings, but I don't mind it so much. <laughs> um, small black flowers that glow in the sky. Dress your cage in its nature. Once you rot now, you just grumbling. Again, another Edwards lyric, um, really, really depressing song. <laughs> yeah, it, musically, actually, I think Headswim ripped this off for their second album. <laughs> I remember Headswim, Tourniquet. Tourniquet. Yeah, their second album, which was nothing like their excellent first album, uh, but it kind of ripped this I think yeah some interesting things about this they've went they decided to go with harps and stuff to make it sound a bit floaty and light even though it's a song about a really heavy subject um, It's what is the title referring to? it's actually it's a line from something else but the song itself is about how Edwards was feeling at the time so it is a really heavy heavy song um, it's also played an open G tuning which is why it sounds the guitar sounds a bit different from what you would normally expect um, the girl who wanted to be gods another Edwards wire jaunt Oh man, this is this is one of the perfect combinations of too much orchestration and hammering the fucking high notes. I think uh, it sounds a bit like Duran Duran in the verses, <laughs> and then Generation Terrace Manix in the in the in the chorus. It's the most triumphant song of the record, and this song is this album's obviously exercising quite a lot of demons. And I think it, this this is one of those songs that definitely does that. Um, then you get Removables, which was apparently recorded in one take. Man, should it, have been left off the record, it's, frankly. It's like a bedroom rock yeah, song, yeah. It should have just been binned. I'm pretty sure it's got the same melody as Four Stone Seven Pounds from the Holy Bible as well. Um, Australia, I'm not even sure why this song exists. <laughs> uh, it's pretty iconic. That's yeah, it's a iconic. big fucking song. It did the job for them. Literally used by the Aussie, te- uh, Aussie Tourist Board for adverts for Australia. Yeah, I, I think the verse in Australia is probably the best bit in this album, but I, th- I think the chorus sucks. I'm not hugely fond of this song, uh, but I love the guitar sound on it. Uh, yeah, I, it's just it's a very nostalgic song. I like listened to it and I was like. Fuck, I haven't heard that in like twenty years, and it's huge. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean that, that guitar line, that lick that yeah. runs through it is pretty, pretty mm-hmm. fucking identifiable. Yeah, uh, you've got interiors again. I always forget the songs on the record, and I usually skip it when I hear it. Um, 
I think it's kind of an interesting subject. William de Koning, who was a painter with Alzheimer's disease, who mm-hmm. um, could, fuck, the, couldn't the, remember what he painted. The Connoisseurs, Jackson Pollock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then the last two songs that finished the record are Further Away, which is like the first Mannix love song. And I like it but, just, just for that. But it's the most oasisy thing they've done. Yeah, I know. Um, the lyrics are kind of completely new for them as well. So it's a completely new territory for them just generally. I know that a lot of this record is like that, but this is like thematically, it's further away from anything they've, <laughs> they've done. Uh, and interestingly, it's this last one, right? No Surface All Feeling. Possibly my favourite Manic song. Right, so here's a, here's a weird thing about this song, right? I, I, this is the first Manic song I heard and I really liked it until I realised that they had wholesale ripped off the song Today by Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is so fucking similar. Yeah. Like the dynamics, mm-hmm. the, the parts, the length, everything, the structure of the song is very fucking similar. I love the big chorus, I love the guitar sounds massive on it. It's got a great solo. James D. Bradfield's a super underrated guitar player. Guy can play, guy can shred like fuck, it's really, really good. Um, and actually, it's uh, got Richie Edwards playing guitar on that, mm-hmm. which must, oh, have been, yeah. must have been recorded before he went away. Um, so, yeah. Look, I don't think it's so much of a Britpop record, so having to find something was quite difficult for me. It's an interesting record. They're an interesting band. Yeah, it's an interesting record from an interesting point in their career as well. Um, they would never see highs like this ever again. Yeah. I'm glad you got a chance to talk about Mannix, because aside from Prince, my, you're you're the Mannix guy. I'd, see, I'd, I, don't like, I don't listen to the Mannix very much anymore, and I've really, really gone off them as I've gotten older, because the lyrical thing just pulls me out a lot of the time. Yeah, they're a band that you hear the lyrics when you're 16 and go, oh, that's so deep, and mm-hmm. then later on you it's go... It's like Nicky oh. Wire's politics as well, it's when you're young, you're like, yeah, Nicky, mm-hmm. you tell them! And then later on you're like, oh, mate... Fucking sit down. There's also there's also the, the part of me is like as I've grown as as I've grown as a writer as well. I'm like fuck, mate. Like yeah, you, you've you've not yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. But yeah, that's, that's my shout for it. I think yeah, I don't think it's a quintessential Britpop record like the Supergrass one is or like Blur or as a band. But I think this is an interesting artifact from that era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, and I I remember it definitely being on a sort of golden pedestal um, when. Britpop was huge. Talking mm. of pedestals, David. Ah, yeah. Anyway, so I mean, Blur—they were one of the kings. The, they won Blur, the battle. Blur if they didn't are win the, the the Britpop. Yeah, band. they are Britpop because yeah, I mean, I know Oasis, Oasis are Britpop, but they're sort of rocky and whatever. Blur are Britpop. Yeah, and they were the South. They were the England. They were the cheeky Cockneys. Yeah, the accent. Yeah, uh, they had the accent. They were a bit posher. They were middle class. If uh, Oasis were the working class yeah. But they weren't private school They did go to Goldsmiths College yeah, That's where just, they met They just come across as kind of like middle class posh boys Yeah um, And one of them definitely became part of the establishment Which we might mention later mm-hmm. um, I th- Can I just say I think it's interesting that you chose this album Because this album coming in 97 Is the death of the scene And, yeah. and this album sounds like <clears throat> the, 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 the central band 
moving away. Well, for me, it sounds like I mean, there's literally a song uh, about the death of the party. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. The whole album sounds like a band that have gone. Oh, let's try and yeah, go almost, beyond what we've just done. Is that yeah, right? totally. Yeah. They they'd fallen out with each other. They wanted to try new things, and it's amazing that they kept going for so long, and that even that Graham Coxon. So I mean, uh, Blur are Damon Alburn, Graham Coxon, Alex James, Dave Rowntree. Uh, they met at Goldsmiths College in uh, London in the mid eighties. They sort of they formed in nineteen eighty eight. They were originally from Essex, uh, so you know they do have a slight sort of oh uh, Giza sort of vibe about them. Yeah, and yeah, the the first album that came out had um, uh, "There's No Other Way" on it, which is a big song. Yeah. Mm. But, but very like, Stone Roses, that yeah, kind of baggy... Yeah, there was definitely yeah. that sort of Manchester Black vibe. Grape, uh, that kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, in fact, they toured with the Cramps in 1990, funnily enough. Um, weird. That is weird. Yeah, which is weird. But yeah, so like in 1991, NME said, they're the acceptable pretty face of this whole clump of bands that have emerged since Manchester things started to run out of steam. So... I think a lot of hope was pinned on them because, you know, they were four smart guys. They were talented. They were attractive. They had a good name. They had a good logo. Uh, and it was like, right, fuck it. Let's try and do what we can do. So, yeah, that, that first record doesn't really stand up even in Britpop yeah, uh, vibes. Age so well. Uh, then in December 92, they had been, um, they worked with Andy Partridge of XTC. Mm-hmm signed uh, to Food Records mm -hmm. uh, and released Modern Life is Rubbish. Which, by the way, is a really good album title. Yeah. Yep. It's just a really fucking good album title. Totally, and it sort of epitomises that sort of tongue-in-cheek British, oh, what the fuck are we doing thing. And then... Some really good songs. As yeah, well. some total bangers on that. Yeah. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's a decent album. It stands up pretty well looking back on it. Uh, then... Seminal album for the scene as well. Yeah. Well, the, the yeah, very much so. Oh. It's like one of the, the, the touchstones. And then 1994 was Park Life, which came out and oh. just fucking... <laughs> It was rip-hop. Oh, and that, oh. You know, that song was just so fucking uh, huge, but that album was fucking massive. Um, there was better stuff in that album. No, there was better stuff in that album. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's, this is probably seen as the defining Blur album, the defining Britpop album in many ways. Yeah, this probably would be if you had to just choose one. Yeah. Um, but you know, End of a Century, great song. I love that song. Uh, to the End, really good song. You know, it's got some interesting stuff on it, like um, 
trouble in the message center. I quite like Magic America. This is a low. Um, this this a low is a cool song. Yeah, this is a low is really cool. And yeah, that sold fucking everything. Uh, uh, it was nominated. But can I can I just point something out here though? What mm-hmm. the fuck is wrong with Blur and run and run times? You know their their four first their first four albums are fifty two minutes, fifty eight minutes, fifty six minutes, and sixty six minutes. I know they never they don't chop fat off oh, at shut all. It's weird. Fuck up, guys. Considering that they're a total um, singles band yeah. in those first four albums, at least. Like, who weird. needs to hear fucking 66 minutes of Blur? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, then in 1995, they did The Great Escape, which was the one that kind of went to battle with What's the Story, Morning Glory, and came out on the bottom. Um, yeah, Country House, yeah, uh, Charmless so, Man, The Universal. Yeah, The Universal is like... An a, interesting tune. Really interesting song, and it stands up, I would say, in like the, mm-hmm. the British catalogue mm-hmm. of great pop songs. It's also a, a song that signalled that a change was coming. Yeah, definitely. That one of the main bands went out on a limb and did something so unconventional Yeah, uh, as a single was very... Very strange. Uh, but then Country House, which was like them full tongue in cheek, just, you know. Yeah, yeah, them distilled right down. Aye, totally. And um, yeah, so you'd gone Modern Life is Rubbish, is it, Park Life, is that and the, the Great one Escape. Stereotypes on it. Great Escape. Uh, yeah. I think like stereo- yeah, it, st- it starts with stereotypes. So stereotypes to me is kind of like peak Britpop. She wears a low cut t shirt, runs a little BMB. She's most accommodating. It's yeah. got a lot of the ingredients that just sum up the the entire movement, the accent, the the, the post punk mixed with jangle, mixed uh, the British patter, the cultural references is one thing. By the way, this is one of the reasons that a lot of British records mm-hmm. failed to take in the mm-hmm. states. It's, it's one of the reasons that uh, Blur albums didn't sell well until. Blur by Blur. Yeah. Because they had too many British cultural references, too much British humour, and it, it was something that listeners in America really couldn't relate to, mm. apparently. Um, so, funnily enough, when it came out, it was rated very highly. NME said, The Great Escape is so rammed with tunes, ideas, emotions, humour, tragedy, farce, and edgy beauty that it's utterly beyond contemporary compare. <laughs> uh, Melody Maker gave it 12 out of 10. <laughs> and do you know what? You look back now, and it's maybe seen as the f- Fifth best, sixth well, best, sometimes if, the worst yeah, Blur album. If you go through the ranker sites, yeah, it's right down in the bottom half every time. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Um, that's the hype of that industry as well, though. Mm. That's that's the, the journalists being too close <clears throat> to the bands, being too close to the industry. Just everybody fucking in everybody else's pockets doing Too that. close to Columbia. Yep. Then they released... <laughs> <laughs> uh, 1997, they released Blur, which we'll talk about. Uh, then the sixth record was 13 in 1999. Which, which I think definitely is a contender for the most unsung, to be honest. Yeah, I think so. It was one of these two. I only chose Blur because I know it a lot better. And do you know what? I listened to 13 and it's interesting and it ha- explores a lot of ideas. But A, Tender I just don't is. think it's as good... Lord, I need to find some 
love Tendo. It's a really good track. And Coffin uh, TV. Coffin TV. It's got it's got some really really great moments on it that I think maybe eclipse some of the great moments on Blur. I don't think it's as solid a record and also it's not a Britpop record agreed it's definitely not. the band had moved on Miller's Blur, the mate. genre didn't really exist anymore um, I think Blur is on the edge that's, that's there's it. bits in it that are still very blurry Blur is kind of a uh, like a very light alt rock record like American College yeah, ended, yeah which yeah. is why it connected I mean it fucking sold massively uh, excuse they, me it sold massively in the states uh, during 13 Graham Coxon left the yep. band Think Tank was released in 2003 Which is a sort of weird Concept album And it was like way more dancey Electronic Yeah it was bringing African. in a lot of stuff he was doing with Gorillaz, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah and he was Yeah, Damon Albarn had really got into sort of world music And stuff like that and Some like really amazing work with African musicians. Yeah, he did stuff at the Arches and yeah, yeah. Um, And then they kind of can we just say it out for a bit? Graham Cox and his. I mean, obviously, it's only four people in the band, but his role is massive in this band because he's good. This band was good. Well, that's it. Almost all of the best moments are Cox and moments Mm. and blur. No offense to the other guys, but they really they're the standout changes in direction and stuff see yeah. they all stem from what he's doing and listening to even things like the effects that he started using because so, he was quite adventurous with his processing totally. his guitar signal mm. and that became a, a central part of the band uh, then they came back and released an 8th album in 2015 15. called The Magic Whip fine it was all right i've seen the cover i've not heard it uh nothing special it sounds like a decent band you know who are all old and comfortable doing some interesting things with their new it's all right there's some good songs on it but um i mean it's definitely not a brit pop album um i think blur is probably the most interesting record for me um, uh, well, I can certainly say I would never have owned a Blur album until this album that we're yeah. discussing. Uh, it was the first time I was like, yeah, I don't mind having that in my house. As much as I thought they had decent moments of tunes, I would never have had a Blur album. I just wasn't a, I wasn't willing to be known as a Blur fan. Mm-hmm. Until yeah, the- I think I remember, I think I got modern, no, maybe The Great Escape or maybe one of the earlier records I borrowed from Inverness Library because I remember they had a CD library. Um, Love it. And I just didn't get into it at all. But then... I bought this album when it came out and I think they were old enough and I was old enough to appreciate it and they were old enough to be doing something just more interesting than the singles that they were kind of known for. Take us through it, gives a wee tour. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's definitely seen as uh, a huge stylistic change. It was Graham Coxon's album, basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. He had taken it. He had always been into stuff like Pavement, like Sonic Youth. And I mean, even David Alburn, you know, really respected... Uh, Nirvana, even though he wanted to distance themselves from, yeah, that. I mean, I, I think we've we've 
been at pains in previous episodes to distinguish between Nirvana and grunge. Yeah. He had no love for grunge, but we, as we've said many times, Nirvana are not typical of grunge. There's a level of uh, nous in Nirvana that is not there with most other bands. Um, so yeah, we'll go through it. It starts off with uh, Beetlebub. And when she lets me slip Maybe their best song a of all time. F- fucking great, th- really, really, good really song. a really mm-hmm. fucking brilliant song. Uh, yeah, it's but it's like weird that you know this is like a year after the big Britpop stuff. It's the same year that Oasis released "Be Here Now," which took everything Oasis had been and just expanded on it, but was shit, overbloated, just overbloated, but yeah. diluted and just full of cocaine. Whereas this is the opposite. Like, Absolute opposite. This is not Country House. This is not Charming Man or Girls and Boys. This is a slow, introspective, yeah. unpretentious song, but it's got a really big melody. I'll, like, it's got a beautiful psychedelic ending. Like, the, the yeah. ending is so nice. Like, it's really, really well done. get a lot of restraint for this band as well so much and I mean we talk about the production the production is really interesting Stephen Street who'd done just a lot of like general indie stuff but the band were also working really hands on with this and you can and the guitar as well just sounds fucking great I mean Coxon's tone is just it's such an unusual line even that first line that it's just so original and different I mean it couldn't be further away from Oasis at that point but it was like a really big track it was like a big single yeah. which is weird considering how understated know, it is people sometimes do get it if you take a chance you know yeah um, i'd also think that song i think coffee and tv is like a sort of a, a sister song to this song yeah absolutely it's similar it's clean it works but it's of, got a similar aesthetic yeah. that kind of downbeat thing uh then track two oh, this is like song a, two nobody's yeah. heard of this song right <laughs> This is like right. the track that Talk about broke them music. in America. Yeah. It's a joke um, song as well. They wrote for it. They yeah, they wrote it as a joke. Taking the piss. It was like mm-hmm. a Teen Spirit sort of rip off. They were just trying it out. I mean, can you um, imagine the fucking royalties that they get from that song? Even now, football and fucking. Yeah. Oh. Even the, like the drummer, Dave Rowtree, was like, it's pissed me off that that song's been in so many fucking adverts for cars, but I've never received a free car. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, but I mean, it's huge. It's a weird it thing. is huge. And that's that song, when I was 10, was it's the reason I bought great, this album. Great video as well. They yeah. did a really yeah, yeah, yeah. great video thing, the, the bit where this, the, the chorus blasts in and they get thrown against the wall and stuff. It's, it was really well done. I remember, though, looking back on it now, I can, I can understand my feelings more. And I liked it, but I knew that it was going to be a transitory like... You know, it was. I liked it at the time, but I was like, "This is this is going to get annoying pretty quick." Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, I love you it right put now. it on every playlist, or you put it on every cassette, and then you've listened to it like, like twelve times. Later, and you then don't you're like, oh, it. I never want to. Yeah, it. exactly. Yeah, but it's like one of those songs that's so addictive and catchy at the beginning. Yeah. Love the guitar tone in the chorus, man. The heavy the guitar tone is. Well, do you know what? Like the cool. it's basically overdriven bass. Like <laughs> the Coxon's not actually doing the heavy lifting on this. It's the bass <laughs> yeah. that's doing the riff. Um, yeah. So yeah, song two total 
banger and by far their biggest song worldwide yeah. in America it was that that helped us sell 3 million but it's weird that it's like a gimmicky song in Britain and doesn't you don't think of this in terms of blur this is the weird one um, then you move on to Countryside Ballad Man Have you ever listened to Mellow Gold by Beck, the first Beck album? Oh, see, Beck's well, an artist that I've never really right. got into. So before, he, before he I did know that Odaly, he's a huge influence on yeah. this record. So Odaly was like Devil's Haircut and stuff like that. That was yeah. a different beast, but but Mellow Gold, his first one. This is the vibe of Mellow Gold. Yeah. That very sort of like whimsical, sort of quite stripped back. Yeah, a weird sort of wonky, like a bleary dream. And this is kind of musically how it introduces the theme of the hangover to Britpop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It also um, sounds like Coxon's having fun in this track. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like there's there's some silly touches in it that sound like they've just, they felt like the, the restraints and expectations just have they've been like, fuck it, in the studio, let's just do what we want. Yeah, and much like Song 2 was like their yeah. sort of tribute to Teen Spirit, this is like their tribute to kind of wonky Americana that you can you start hearing those melodies coming in that were, you know, not British. It's a really warm song, right? It feels really nice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It does feel like it's got a jam vibe going on mm-hmm. as well, which I quite liked. Uh, then M.O.R. Now, M.O.R. is without a doubt the, the thing that gave birth to Kaiser Chiefs. I mean, yeah, it's British rock. <laughs> yeah, it's, so so it's, much Bowie influencing his vocals a yeah, lot. Yeah, oh, yeah, a lot of Bowie in this song. throughout for Albert, mm-hmm. I think. In this, yeah, it, it's got Coxon doing his like classic angsty sort of riff, but then like big fucking melody is when it comes in. It's catchy as fuck. It's a weird sort of transatlantic mix. I think this record. It sounds like a really British song, but there are definitely American influences coming in. But yeah, it's the most backward on the record, I think. Like the most sort of yeah. old blur. Yeah, it sounds and like pop, pop, pop grown up. Aye, yeah, totally. I th- I but it's within big, the, it's, pr- the production of this record, it doesn't sound too shit. <laughs> it's it's a, it's a definitely a more grown up version of the Britpop stuff. And I think it is the logical precursor to like Maximum Park, Kaiser Chiefs, mm-hmm. that kind of sound, which is Britpop, but done slightly bigger. Mm-hmm. If you know what yeah. I mean. uh, then next you got On Your Own. <laughs> Another weird sort of fucked up production. This is the most typically blur one I think yeah. that's on it. But I, I will say this is one of the ones where Graham Cox and like he's experimenting with pedals and he's got one of those freeze pedals and yeah. he uses that to really good effect. Love a freeze pedal. Love yeah. a freeze. Yeah, pedal. the like the, the the electronics and the effects are wonky. But you know he's making guitar sounds that sound like like springs popping out of yeah. a mattress or a broken piano or something like that. If this and wasn't like, so wonky that the, the this is a, this has got like massive like stadium sing along potential this song. Yeah. Well that's it. I th- it sounds like 
country house after the house has fallen down yeah. <laughs> it's like you know the aftermath and it's again it's got huge big bowie vibes coming mm-hmm. from Melbourne. uh then theme from retro and i think on the cassette theme from retro and the interlude were on the same bit but the I, interlude then comes at the end on the Spotify and the CD, maybe. So I, I really find the album plods for <coughs> in the middle. I definitely, I find it a bit baggy. I think Theme from Retro is this sort of weird, spacey interlude. It's playful, it's a bit dark, but eh, it's all right. You're so great. I'd, like, this is like stripped back acoustic, like pavement or something. Like it sounds Beck. like Weezer to me. It sounds like lo-fi Weezer yeah, to me. It's got like really grungy vocals. Mm-hmm. The melodies are like grunge. It doesn't really sound British at all. This is, yeah, it's weird. It's a weird one. Um, but then we go to Death of a Party, which I think thematically anchors the album, even yeah. if it's not the best track. Agreed. And it's got these slightly trip hop vibes. It's got that weird keyboard synth. It's, it's a, a pretty, bit sort of it's got a pretty horror. chorus. The chorus is nice, yeah, it, but it's uh, a yeah, very, totally. very fucking ketamine well, verse. I think the very ketamine. I think Gorilla started here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, yeah. possibly true. Um, but then, like when it comes in at fifty-four seconds with that really clear chorus, and it's got that little cox and guitar riff that goes through it. I think it really stands out and brings it up another level. The chorus makes it a much better song than it kind of deserves to be, maybe. Um, then Chinese bombs. Chinese bombs. Just Which a little a another song. scuzzed out. Chinese bombs punk sounds song. like Harmacy Era Sebado. Like it's very, very Aye, similar yeah, to that, yeah. which I think he was quite into it as well. Yeah. Um, everything's just like peeking on this. Everything's peeking on this is kind of cool. <laughs> then I'm just a killer for your love. Uh, so again, very, very, very uh, in keeping with early Beck. Even thematically, like the mm-hmm. the lyrics and the pacing and that, it's got bass wah pro- on it. The I weird think bass Yeah, I think this track could maybe it's got slacker left on it. If the if you're cutting down, I'm maybe, happy. but, but it, it works. It's a slacker vibe, and that again yeah. was part of why it works American for the audience liked it definitely. And it works for the pacing of the record. Yeah. Maybe it's really druggy, isn't it? Yeah, the yeah. whole album is kind yeah. of, but like a even the covers kind of druggy. Yeah. Like in a not in a cocaine like. Once again, you look at Oasis doing their their coke. This is definitely not a cocaine record. Then look inside America. Yeah, look inside America. Totally done without. Totally. (sighs) 
Well, it's got a very sort of quiet, Bowie-esque, sort of spacey, jazzy, yeah. fall-apart thing at the end. I actually thought it felt kind of oasis-y when the strings come in. Yeah, maybe. Which is a really I, odd point of reference, I know. Yeah, interesting. I, an interesting crossover. Then maybe moving it's a, maybe on. It's a thing, actually. Moving on, I think I know this one well because when song two had finished on the cassette, I then turn it over and moving on would be on and I'd listen to that and then I'd just listen to Beetlebub and song two again. <laughs> so like that bit of the cassette. But um, moving on actually sounds like the band Menswear. It, like, it does. It's a fun song, but it's like, yeah, it's like what Britpop should... S- feels a wee bit what? reined in by its expectations. Like yeah. They've, they've, yeah. But oh. they've, stu- then, they've stuck it at the back, I think, <clears throat> on purpose. Uh, and then finish on Essex Dogs. Wait, Essex Dogs. Wait, wait, is... wait! You've missed strange oh. news from an all-star. Oh, have I? Which is also very. Oh, bo- it's the twelfth one. Yeah. Sorry, very uh, boy-esque as well. Right. Um, it's got that kind of accordion thing in it. Just, I think it's, it sounds like an accordion It might not be It's a really fucking guitar. long album Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It is a long record And then Yeah Essex Dogs Is like a big sort of Slow fuck about exit Yeah Breakdown and everything <laughs> And then I think on the online stuff it's got the interlude mm. which is really nice actually a bit of like delay Graham Coxon fucking about um, so yeah uh, do you know what I actually enjoyed listening to this record um, over the last week it definitely good. reminded me that it's got, I think it's got three or four really good moments that, and mm-hmm. I mean certainly with the Beetlebum fucking superb moment but yeah. I do think it's yeah I think it's inconsistent it's definitely inconsistent but what I like about it was that it was the al- album that they made after the peak of Britpop and it's them taking it in and it's them processing it and it's like the hangover to it. It's still got big callbacks to, you know, blur at their most blur and blur at their most Britpop. But like this was a band that had definitely had way more to say. And I just, it was an interesting take on all of their influences, but most importantly, Graham Coxon's, because I think he's the most interesting of them all. Mm. Um, And yeah, I like this record, so. I I, I dig it. I dig it as a sort of, uh, it's a good device a good lens through which to look at the end of Britpop as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think especially that comparison, the contrast at this point about how fucking overblown and druggy and self-assured uh, Oasis had gotten, whereas Blur had taken that experience, having gone from being overly self-assured and were actually doing something much yeah, more Yeah, just showed that they were way more self-aware than Oasis. Yeah, yeah which so I think another of... thing is to, to kind of they kind of back up that point it's like this actually sounds like a band that know what they want to do yeah BR now sounds like a band that just didn't know what to do and just yeah, totally. fucking let's just do what we usually do but bigger mm-hmm. you know yeah so, uh, alright so go say. to the Facebook and vote for one of these three yes please and, and only one of them will get in you've got to go on the website and vote so if you're listening fucking do that because only one oh yeah person. yeah because we can't do a three way yeah. on Facebook only one person pod. voted for the podcast the podcast uh, the pop punk episode <laughs> unsungpod.net it's just one click away yeah um, right so we should uh, do a quick nexus 
Adam. This is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight. Will it be the last? What do they have in store for us? not good for Why am I here? You're in the Nexus. This is the Nexus. For you, this is what you want. Jenny Hogan chose, yeah, chose Lady Hill. And for anyone that doesn't know, there was a, a ruling about the suspension of Parliament being illegal, and it was made by a woman called Lady Hale, who was the head of the Supreme Sup- Court. Supreme Court, and she had a big fucking spider, spider brooch. brooch. She's apparently very well known for her uh, eccentric brooches. Yep. So uh, you go first. So you had the last See how so. quickly I can do it. Depressingly quickly. <laughs> uh, so Blur include the bassist Alex James, who is now uh, a famous cheesemaker and twat. <laughs> uh, Alex James is famously a member of the Chipping Norton set, which is a bunch of the establishment that live in a fucking rich little town that include Charlie and Rebecca Brooks, uh, Jeremy Clarkson, oh, wow. uh, Elizabeth Murdoch, and David and Samantha Cameron are great. There. So they all go around and discuss, uh, I don't know, what the fuck. Past mistakes. Discuss. Yeah, exactly. Jeez. David Cameron was followed by Theresa May in looking after the country. Uh, <laughs> doing really well at that. Inverted commas. And Theresa May uh, was appointed Lady Hale to serve as president of the Supreme Court in September 2017. Fucking... Nailed it. Bob's your uncle. Uh, so, um, the Manics album, The Holy Bible, is and and the journal for and journal for plague lovers has are on the f- cover by Jenny Savile, who was um, part of the nineteen ninety seven Young British Artists Exhibition. Um, it was called Sensation. That was where Damien Hirst famously had his uh, animals preserved. Yeah, the shark. Yeah. So Damien Hirst uh, is actually a musician of sorts. He he created the band Fat Les with uh, none other than Alex James from La. <laughs> Vindaloo. Vindaloo. Yeah, Vindaloo is the, indeed the song. Um, and the vocals were by Keith Allen. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember um, in the video. Keith Allen was a contestant on MasterChef and Lady Hill was a celebrity judge on that series of MasterChef. Holy shit. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty good. Wow. Okay. Challenge accepted. Uh, Supergrass released a song called Richard III and Richard III quite famously has a, a theremin solo in the middle uh, which apparently was the, the idea of Mick the drummer and he said he stole that idea from Scooby-Doo <laughs> <laughs> that's very Supergrass in itself uh, Scooby-Doo by the way whose real name is apparently Scoobert-Doo <laughs> true, true. Uh, Scooby-Doo was also a triplet I can't remember the other one's names uh, longest running US daytime show uh, also the first show, uh, first cartoon on TV with a laughter track. Um, now, the character Shaggy in Scooby-Doo was voiced by Casey Kasem. Remember Casey Kasem? Casey Kasem used to host America's Top 40 uh, on Saturday morning TV, which is like the chart show mm-hmm. every mm-hmm. week. But also, Casey Kasem is a lifelong vegan. Um, one of the, when veganism wasn't fashionable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
in Casey Kasem, invoicing Shaggy, had asked the writers and had asked the studio Hanna-Barbera to make Shaggy vegetarian. Uh, the, the studio refused, uh, you know, just obviously because when he's eating Scooby snacks and stuff. And actually, uh, Casey Kasem quit as the voice of Shaggy when they allowed Shaggy to be used in an advert for Burger King. He, oh, wa- interesting. he walked out. Um, Burger King, the company, uh-huh. was originally called Insta Burger King, by the way. Uh, it has a secret menu. I've heard about this. So Burger King has a secret menu. Mm-hmm. You can go in and ask for, there's about a dozen things that you can ask for that aren't on the menu. One of them is a suicide burger. Right. Right. And there's a whole bunch of other things. And I think actually one of them made the jump from the secret menu to the main menu in the form of a thing called a rodeo burger. Um, but they also have a thing called uh, the Burger King crown card, which is this gold card. Mm. McDonald's has an equivalent as well. Yeah. There's only 12 people in the world have a Burger King crown card. <laughs> wow. <laughs> One of them is Robert Downey Jr. Uh-huh. One of them is Jennifer Hudson. Yeah. One of them is George Lucas. Jay Leno. And one of them is Hugh Laurie. I thought you were going to say Lady Hale. I know. I was, I was like, like <laughs> Lady Hale fucking slamming down one the whoppers. One of them is Lady Hale's brooch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of them is Hugh Laurie. Hugh Laurie, the comedian. Uh, what? <laughs> And actor. Yeah, that, thanks. Yeah, yeah, sorry, but he was originally a comedian. Yeah, no, it's yeah. like... Brian Laurie, like, Stephen Fry's yeah. partner, yeah. But most um, American actors be like, that's house. Yeah, so uh, the comedian Hugh Dennis, who is fairly shit, uh, <laughs> used to be on a show called Punt and Dennis. He's also been in good stuff like Fleabag and Brass Eye, but mm-hmm. generally speaking isn't the best. And he's in some show called Not Going Out, which has been on for years. Um, Hugh Dennis says that uh, Hugh Laurie's the only person he's ever been starstruck on meeting, and he's met him a few times, and he says consistently walks away from the conversation feeling like a tit. Mm-hmm. Um, Hugh Dennis uh, in 2017 uh, co-starred in a play called The Disappearance of Miss Beb uh, about uh, it was a, it was set in the 1930s I think about a legal feminist pioneer who died really young and in that play uh, Sir Brian Levinson of the News of the World Levinson Inquiry Levinson Inquiry and Lady Hale both were performers oh really yep wow well, that's pretty good Fuck. well done that's good yeah Pretty good next eye all yeah. round. Yeah. yeah, I was quite happy with this well then. I'm going to be forever disappointed Lady Hale's not got a gold for a king card. <laughs> you should lobby for it. All right, so go vote, for for, for, go vote uh-huh. for your uh, favourite Britpop album. I thought I'd never say that. I yeah. never thought I'd say that. Yeah. Uh, that was, I mean, we, yeah. we did our time there. So because this has been two long episodes, we're taking a week off mm-hmm. and then we will be back and we're coming back with Dave's Choice. Well, we're not taking a week off in terms of you listening. Oh, no, you'll hear it, but we'll we're, hear it, we're, we're just we're, we're we're releasing this a week yeah. apart because, God damn, that was a lot of work. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Uh, we haven't done dance music for a while. Uh, this is a band that could maybe have flirted with Britpop a little bit just in terms of being big in On Britain at the same time. Uh, I want to do Orbital. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, and middle of nowhere. Okay. Um, yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll so change the we'll direction that next uh, week from our usual. Yeah, this will be a this will be a it'll rinse my ears out. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I can't tell if you'll hate it or not, but. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, it we'll cannot see. be any worse than fucking Cockney, Cockney. Well, right, yeah, right, exactly. Right. I know. All right. Uh, that was fun. Thanks. In a weird way. Thank you. Yeah. Let's. Ne- I never let's w- never speak of it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Should we make a playlist of it? No. 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 <laughs> 